0: As I just said in my prayer, I want to try to cover tonight um, about 2,000 years of church history. Uh, Not an easy task, and therefore what I say will be of necessity, somewhat superficial, and have the the feel of a survey about it. Um, Feel free to ask questions at the end. Um, Everything I know about the subject I will have said in the lecture, so I'll merely be able to repeat myself uh, any bits that you didn't hear correctly. But I want to talk, uh, as really to give a historical background or context to what my three colleagues are going to be saying in the next few weeks on the kingdom of God. And one of the uh, lessons I think that one gets from looking at the kingdom of God in church history, how Christians and churches throughout the ages have understood the concept, is that it is highly relevant to what you understand the gospel and the church to be. Your understanding of the kingdom touches directly, I think, upon your understanding of what exactly the good news of Jesus Christ is and how this relates to the world around us. Now, throughout church history, there have probably been as many differently nuanced positions on the kingdom of God as there have been uh, churches or strands of the Christian tradition. What I've tried to do tonight is to gather these under, the, under four or five basic headings. Uh, not that every figure in church history will fall neatly into one of these headings. Uh, not that these headings are completely adequate for discussing everybody. But I think they offer the four or five basic paradigms for understanding the kingdom in church history that will give you a good map or a good handle on reading the text for yourselves. And the, I, I keep saying four or five. It's not because I haven't yet prepared my lecture and I'm uh, making it up as I go along. Though I did say to Sue Logan yesterday when she was telling me about it tonight, I said, well, I better go and prepare something then. And she laughed because she thought I was joking uh, <laughs> at the time. But I, I'm offering what I would call four models and then what I consider to be a half model or a pseudo model because I don't think it is really a model at all. And the, the four models... Proper models that I want to look at are the Augustinian model, what I've called the Constantinian model, though I'm using that to cover a number of different kinds of understandings of the kingdom. The separatist model, which again I will use to cover a couple of different phenomena in church history. Uh, the liberationist model. And then the model that I'm not sure whether it's really one or not, the evangelical one. And the reason why I'm not sure whether to ascribe that a model of, uh, as a model of reflection of the kingdom or not is that I don't think evangelicals have reflected greatly upon the nature of the kingdom. And therefore, they offer, if you like, a non-answer on the whole to the problem because it is not something that evangelicalism, and I include myself when I talk, I'm not talking about them and us, including myself to an extent in that description, it is not something that evangelicals have spent a great deal of time or effort reflecting upon. It simply hasn't been part of their stroke, our agenda. So then I want to talk very briefly tonight about these four main models and then touch a little bit on the, the fifth sort of pseudo model. First model to look at is the Augustinian one. This is the, the reflections upon the kingdom that are offered by St. Augustine, but not just by him. His ideas, I think, have roots in the patristic, in the early church era, prior to Augustine himself. He represents one of the most brilliant expressions of some of these ideas, and his ideas don't die with him either. They continue to inform church thinking right the way down through the centuries. Uh, And I'm going to argue, I'm going to put forward tonight, Martin Luther, as in many ways one of the great expounders, developers, articulators of what I consider to be an Augustinian understanding of God's kingdom. What do I mean then in terms of the detail by Augustine's view? Well, if we go back before Augustine to the time of the apostolic fathers and the apologists, those uh, men who, and I'm aware of the company I'm speaking in, but as far as we know, they were men, I think, Um, those men whose job it was, if you like, to make the case for Christianity in the years following the death of the apostles. They're very interesting for a variety of reasons. One reason is we know hardly anything about them, which makes them nice people to study because students ask you questions and you just turn around and say, Well, we just don't know the answer to that. Um, they also faced, of course, an acute set of problems. What do you do when the apostles are dead? when you've got the apostles there, when you have men who are divinely inspired, when you have Paul and Peter leading the church, you don't have problems that you'll have 10, 20, 30, 40 years hence when these men have gone. And the task of the apostolic fathers, the task of the apologists, was in part to make a case for Christianity within the context of the Roman Empire. Now, contrary to popular Opinion: The Roman Empire was not in the business of persecuting people willy-nilly. It makes no sense, if you think about it, to go around persecuting. You generally persecute people because there's a problem. On the whole, if there is no problem, you don't bother to persecute them. So persecution in the Roman Empire is uh, sporadic. Rome has a religion that is very amenable to other religions, if you like. The genius of the Roman Empire is it's able to absorb a lot of different religions without it causing a lot of problems. It's what we might call a pluralist society. The Romans thought of religion as really as a civic thing, and they were concerned if religions were coming forward that undermined civic virtue, that undermined the stability, if you like, of society. So providing your religion was not doing that, you didn't have a problem. And it's in this context that we get the apostolic fathers and the apologists working. And the great burden of these men was that Christianity doesn't disrupt the social order. What Christianity does is it makes you a good citizen, makes you a good slave, makes you a good civil servant, makes you a good labourer. Whatever you do, if you're a Christian, you should do it better. And of course the reason why they're putting across this argument is to make the point that Christianity doesn't disrupt civic virtue, doesn't disrupt civil society as such. It tended, in terms of understanding of the kingdom, of course, to do two things, and these things I think are picked up by Augustine. It tended to spiritualize the nature of the kingdom of God in that it was not something that stood in opposition automatically, to the kingdom of the world. And I'm using the world there in the broad sense of what we might say today, the secular environment. I'm not particularly thinking of the world as in demonic forces or sinful powers or something like that. So it tended to spiritualize understanding of God's kingdom. And of course it tended to project, if you like, the realisation of that kingdom in its full form into the future. And it's those two strands that are picked up by Augustine. And if you want to read Augustine's great uh, extrapolation of these ideas, the book to read is The City of God. And it's a whopper. I mean, Augustine wrote a lot. And we, you know, for, for an, a figure in the ancient world, we have a huge amount of Augustine's own writings extant. We know probably as much about Augustine as we do about any other figure in the ancient world. And The City of God is by far his biggest book. And he could write big books this thing is 12 1300 pages in english translation it's uh, those of you familiar with the Loeb classical library which is one place to get hold of a good translation this it's two or three volumes in that that library so it's a big big book he wrote it sporadically for 14 years between 413 and 427 in the context really of the fragmentation the collapse the decline of Rome's power. And that is significant for what he has to say. And the city of God is, in a way, the tale of two cities. It's a tale of a heavenly city, and it's a tale of an earthly city. And for Augustine, citizenship in these cities is not determined by birth. It's not that you're born in the United States, therefore you're an American citizen. You're not born in the city of the earth, and you're an earthly citizen. Citizenship is determined by the object of your love for Augustine. Augustine has this great notion that that which makes human beings properly what they should be is the object of love. Talk all night about that. For Augustine, I think sin, if you like, is the wrong answer to the right question. For Augustine, the question for all human beings is, what or who should I love? The answer of sin is, love yourself. True answer, of course, is one should love God. So citizenship of these cities is determined by the object of love. There is the earthly city guided by self-love, the flesh, concern for yourself and your own selfish desires and drives. And there is the heavenly city dedicated to truth, dedicated to love of God, dedicated to true justice. Now Augustine allows that this heavenly city can be anticipated here to a certain extent. The kingdom, if you like, can be realized to a certain extent upon earth. One of the things he does in his monasteries, Augustine sets up a kind of monasticism where the focus is on the community life. Prior to Augustine, monasticism is really about the individual struggle against temptation. With Augustine, monasticism comes to be and not so much a slaying of sin, if you like, as an anticipation here and now of the heavenly community. You can create a community, a monastic community here and now, dedicated to love of God and love of neighbor, and that anticipates the future kingdom. But it can never be done permanently or perfectly. Sin is always a problem. Evil is always a problem. Human beings will always have a tendency... Although hypothetically I think Augustine would allow that human beings can be perfect in practice it's never the case in practice human beings will always tend to love self and therefore the anticipations of the heavenly kingdom here on earth can only be temporary and slight this has a twofold importance for augustine first of all he's able to pick up and run with the greek apologist stuff about christianity makes you a loyal citizen So the idea of the two cities doesn't set you up in a kind of conflict of loyalties. He's able to argue, no, a Christian will still be a good citizen. Still be a good citizen here on earth. But it also allows him to argue, and this is, if you like, perhaps more significant for the topics of these talks, that there is no distinctive Christian polity or society. That the heavenly kingdom... Is projected into the future. And that is a very significant point. And I think that is a point that I'm going to try to draw on later and say I think that has significance for us today because, of course, depending on how far you think the kingdom of heaven can be anticipated and realized here on earth, and how far the Bible itself imposes upon you a form of politics or a form of economic organization, has profound impact. Upon how you as a Christian relate to the society around you. So Augustine's genius then, I give my sort of put my own cards on the table here, I suppose. My, for me, Augustine's genius is that he was able to do what the Greek apologists did, but also bring out the spiritual nature of the kingdom. Some of you will probably be disagreeing with what I'm saying already. All I intend to do tonight is lay out the series of options. I leave it to more brilliant and more biblical colleagues to tell you which are the true ones. or not. I simply tell you what the problems are in each of these things. One of the things that Augustine is facing and that drives his uh, writing of the city of God is he's surrounded by Christian leaders, many of whom are his colleagues and friends and whom he respects, who are very, very keen to identify Roman culture and the glory that is Rome with the kingdom of God. The Christianizing of the empire is the Christianizing of the world. Uh, A man called Orosius writes seven books of histories against the pagans where he draws on all of these Old Testament types to show how Rome is the meaning of history. And there has not been, of course, an empire throughout history from Rome onwards down to the present day that has not considered itself to be the meaning of history. And so far, every single one except for America, who's only just getting, getting on the, 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 sort of the, the role, I suppose. Every single one has been proved wrong. That, I think, is significant and should at least inject some modesty into our own understanding mm-hmm. of ourselves and our age in the grand scheme mm-hmm. of things. Augustine also sees the problem with that kind of identification of we are the meaning of history as failing to understand the mysterious nature of evil in God's purposes. Augustine simply can't accept that things are going to get better and better and better, partly because there seem to be an awful lot of warning signs on the horizon, such as the Gothic invasion, that are indicating that that is not the case, but also because it reduces evil to either a mechanistic thing or something that God does not use for his own purposes. And for Augustine, there is a deep mystery about evil. That God is, if you like, able to subvert evil for his own purposes, even as it is evil. And that feeds into his far more modest, I think, reading of Rome and Roman history at that point. This thinking is picked up and developed by Luther. There's a lot that goes on in the Middle Ages that passes under... the notion that this is Augustinian. There's a lot of theology in the Middle Ages that is Augustinian. My mind's going back to the Lone Ranger when I hear that. uh, If I was more sophisticated, I'd said, oh, Rossini, how wonderful. um, (laughs) (laughs) Jay Silverheels, that's what comes to my mind when I hear that that sound. There's a lot that goes on in the Middle Ages that is Augustinian in the broadest sense of the word. And a lot of what passes for ecclesiology is described as Augustinian, But as I've said, because Augustine does not believe that there is such a thing as a Christian polity, much of what is described as Augustinian in terms of political relations in the Middle Ages is not really distinctively Christian. In fact, I think that the Middle Ages owes a greater debt to Ambrose and Gregory the Great on the political front than it does to Augustine. But Luther, Great Luther of the 16th century picks up this two kingdoms idea, this, well, this two seasons idea, turns it into his two kingdoms idea. For Luther, reality is divided into two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of the world and there is the kingdom of the church. The one is ruled by the sword, the other is ruled by the word. There are a few things to observe in Luther's understanding of the kingdom here. First of all, everyone is a member of both kingdoms. And that's very important. It's not that when you become a Christian, you cease to be a member of the, Christ- of the world. No, everybody, every baptised person, everybody's baptised, and that, for Luther, places everybody in the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of the church. But the two kingdoms, picking up and developing uh, Augustine, have separate spheres of competence. The world sphere of competence is the social and political protection of the innocent. In some ways, that can be as big or as small as you want to make it. But primarily for Luther, the kingdom of the world, government, we might say, is for the protection of the innocent. And that, of course, can involve taxation. It can involve waging war. Luther's no pacifist. Christians can be soldiers. He writes a, a, a tract uh, with the title, "Can Christians too be Can soldiers too be saved?" Question mark, and the answer is yes. Soldiering is a legitimate profession. It's part of being a kingdom of the world. Uh, Nations need armies to protect themselves and to protect the innocent. You need somebody to enforce the law code to protect those who are not able to protect themselves. The church, however, is focused on preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. And for Luther, in theory at least, there is a strict line drawn between these two. In practice, of course, Luther transgresses. He crosses that line. His own life is not a perfect example of his teaching any more than anybody's life is a perfect example of what they theoretically teach. But for Luther, there is this strict line of separation between the two. The gospel is not the responsibility of the state. The sacraments are not the responsibility of the state. And politics are not the task of the church. Politics, political issues, taxation, economics, lawmaking, waging of war. These are not the responsibility of the church. These are the responsibility for Luther of the civil magistrate. So you have in Luther two kingdoms, and the kingdom of God is a kingdom focused very much around the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. There is, within this one might say, a strong impulse towards the secularization of society. What Luther puts in place here will ultimately facilitate secularization. By demarcating the spheres, if you like, of the gospel and the spheres of the civil magistrate, Luther is freeing the civil society for more rapid secularization. Secularization is much more complicated, of course, than uh, an innovation by Luther there, but it's part and parcel of what goes on. Secondly, and this is where I think that this kind of thinking uh, has its strong point, by spiritualizing the church in that way, I think Luther allows for the church to be much more culturally sensitive in theory than it might otherwise have been. What do I mean by that? Well, essentially, bring it into modern-day terms, if you like, no culture-bound political or economic structure is made the essence of the faith. And if you think about it, that's common sense, because throughout history, the economic and political structures of society has changed very dramatically, from feudalism through to capitalism, through to advanced capitalism, as we have now, globalised capitalism. If one wanted to make a particular social or economic structure, part of the essence of the faith, then you're ruling out of bounds an awful lot, even today, of contemporary Christians. So one of the strengths, I think, of Luther's position, one of the things that commends it to myself, is that it, by limiting, by spiritualizing the church's role, it cuts out a lot of cultural accretions it makes them of relatively little importance to the gospel. Problems, though, there are problems with this approach. Primarily, of course, one would want to say, looking particularly at Luther's own country, Germany, does the two kingdoms idea leave the way open to totalitarianism? If you so spiritualize the church's task as to maintain this strict separation of the theological from the political and the economic, if in fact you can do that, do you not open the way for the political sphere to effectively do what it wants without the church resisting it? And of course, there are many who would say that that that's precisely what happens in Nazi Germany. Luther's theory is all very well in a nice, pleasant society where everybody's being decent to everybody else. But if you push it to an extreme, is this view of the kingdom, this highly spiritualized view of the kingdom, not problematic? Does it not prevent the church effectively from having a powerful voice for speaking out for the oppressed or speaking out against the oppressors? I would want to, I can't, maybe I could answer, develop this in the question and answer session afterwards. I would want to argue that Luther's position does not necessarily leave the door open to that, though I can see that it might well do so. So that then is the broad Augustinian strain. And the key thing to get from it is that I think it is a spiritualized view of the kingdom here and now, kingdom of God here and now. The kingdom is embodied in the church through the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. And the kingdom in the Augustinian framework like that makes few political, economic, social claims on the world around it. Second model Constantinian, and I'm using this term very, very broadly. <clears throat> conversion of Constantine in 312 paved the way for the ultimate conversion, in inverted commas, of the Roman Empire to Christianity. Just at a point, of course, where it's very convenient for the Roman Empire to be converted to Christianity because the church has a better administrative structure than the empire does. And it's very convenient for the empire to be able to draw on that structure to administer its huge burgeoning empire what it leads to i think in the late roman empire and throughout the middle ages is an effective fusion of church and state not the relationship is not always the same and certainly in the middle ages you have struggles between the holy roman empire and the church but on the whole you have a common program embodying common interests an identification in many ways, of the kingdom of God with a joint project of church and state. Identification of the kingdom of God with a joint project of church and state. And I would want to embrace not just medieval Catholicism in this, but also uh, Anglicanism, any system where you have uh, an established church that does not also have a clear doctrine of the spirituality of the church you will end up with a fusion of church-state issues and interests. What are the results of this as a pattern? I think one of the first and most obvious results, certainly in the Middle Ages, is persecution. Theology is politics and politics is theology. To occupy a deviant theological position is to occupy a deviant social position and therefore to be subject to civil and social penalties. That is how it was in the Middle Ages. That is how it was at the Reformation to a large extent in many states. It was how it was in post-Reformation England. Religion, theology becomes, if you like, the religious expression of the position of the state. And therefore, defying the dominant theology is tantamount to defying the state itself. And you can expect to face penalties for that. There is a blurring of the lines between church and state regarding their spheres of competence. I have here, theology becomes political ideology and the church becomes an instrument of social and political control. The most honest philosopher in this regard is a man called Thomas Hobbes, brilliant Englishman of the 17th century who essentially saw religion as a means for the church, uh, a means for the state to control its people. Religion was one of the social glues, if you like, that held the state together. One might say that sport does a similar thing today. It's, if you like, for Hobbes, religion is that great contract that makes people feel they all belong to the same body with the same political interests. Um, Sport, I think, certainly in the Western world, is substantially the same contract. It tricks us all into believing but we share something in common. And that's why people get this violent about it, of course, at times. It maintains as well, I think, a vision of God's kingdom in its more theological expressions, which is more than an eschatologically oriented pietism. It does have a view for, or a vision, for the impact of theology on the whole of society. And that's where I would, one might say that one of its strong points is it takes seriously what would seem to me self-evident claims in the Bible about the social impact of Christianity, which are perhaps more difficult to square with an Augustinian model. The question would be at what cost? Historically, the cost has been huge in certain places. I'm thinking of uh, 19th century Britain I meant to bring it in, I I forgot, but I have this wonderful uh, Bible cover from the 19th century which says the Holy Bible, and underneath it says the secret of England's greatness. And it's, I mean, it's been ripped off. I mean, there's no Bible there anymore. It's a sort of metaphor for the whole thing. could only have been produced in the latter part of the 19th century. I don't know what the date was, but I'm guessing it's the latter part of the 19th century. It comes out of that imperial mentality. And you have there on the front of the Bible a clear fusion, if you like, of the interests of England's empire and the spread of the gospel. And you can bet your life at the end of the day what was more important to the politicians was the spread of England's empire than the spread of the gospel. And the gospel became, for some at least, merely a means of spreading uh, English culture. You'll notice it's England, it isn't even Britain. Um, It's England we're talking about. Scotland and Wales and Ireland, they too are... Imperial vassal states in the mind of whoever put that particular Bible together. An implicit Constantinianism, I think, there. A fusion of the interests of church and state, ultimately at the expense of the church. Fourth model. Or is it the third model? It's the third model, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's the third model. Sectarian. Sectarian model. Understanding the kingdom of God. Uh, sectarian stroke anabaptist here in the 16th century with the rise of anabaptism the church becomes an alternative society the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of god in the first two models i've talked about are not necessarily opposed to each other they are positively related in different ways but they're related in anabaptism the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of god are mutually exclusive on the whole and the kingdom of god is not necessarily projected into the future but he's realized here and now this is why rebaptism was such a huge issue At the end of the day, who cares if people sprinkle a bit of water on the head of an adult it's not the sprinkling of the water or even the immersing that's the problem what is the pro- the problem is is that the anabaptists by doing that are saying we are taking this person out of civil society and putting him in the church and the two things are mutually exclusive the anabaptists are if you like shattering all accepted theory about The relationship of church and state. One could say perhaps this is anticipated a little in monasticism in Augustine's uh, monasteries attempting to anticipate the kingdom of heaven on earth. But in Anabaptism the break is much more radical. The kingdom is being formed here on earth. And there are two, again I've divided this as you in know, my reform course, in good sort of uh, Ramist fashion where everything's divided into two. I'm dividing this into what I call the withdrawal kind and the revolutionary kind. There are those Anabaptists who withdraw peaceably from society to set up their own alternatives. The Quakers, though they would prove to be very efficient businessmen on the whole, um, Though it's interesting, when Benjamin Franklin died, he left equal amounts of money to Philadelphia and to Boston. And I think I'm right in saying that uh, 200 years later, his investment was worth a lot more in Boston than it was in Philadelphia. And it's tied to the different mentality of Quakers and Puritans to investment, would you believe? But I can't remember the details of that one. The Quakers, classic withdrawal from society kind of people. They were initially quite a violent group. We tend to think of Quakers. They're nice, peaceful people. They sit around very quietly and wait for the spirit to move them. Um, George Fox, of course, uh, campaigned to have Cromwell use his navy to invade Rome and overthrow the Antichrist. So initially, they had their own violent tendencies, but very soon became pacifists. And I don't know if you've had cases in the US, but in Britain, the Quakers in the, in the 70s and 80s became Famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, for refusing to pay tax, who would not pay a proportion of their tax that went to nuclear weapons? So they were effectively withdrawing themselves from society. If you like, they were Quakers. They were part, in some ways, of a different society, a different community, and didn't feel beholden ultimately to all of the rules and regulations of the society they had, albeit partially, withdrawn from. On the other side, however, extremely violent visions of the kingdom. Most famously, I wonder what that was for us was another strange cell phone going off in the background. <laughs> but, uh, most famously, at a place called Münster in Germany, where between 1533 and 1535, the Anabaptists took over, took over a city, and it all went horribly, horribly wrong. Um, It's always a bad sign when particular individuals think that they've been predicted in biblical prophecy. It's almost always a sign that there's imminent disaster on the front. The two characters, uh, Jan Matthijs and John of Leiden, Dutchman, led Munster and set up an entirely alternative society with alternative sexual morality. Polygamy was allowed, fueled by their understanding of biblical prophecy and their understanding that it was their job to bring heaven down to earth, that the kingdom was something new that they were creating here on earth. They weren't the first to do it. We get touches of it in the Peasants' Rebellion in 1525, when considering we've talked about a place called Münster, there's a man called Münzer. He's a man, not a place, but he has a similar view of, well, a very interesting view of election, where you go out and you slay the non-elect as a way of gathering the elect in. Great fun, but not very biblical, I'm afraid, on the whole. The independence of the 1640s and 1650s in England overthrew the ruling order, executed the King of England. The most glorious day in English history, from my own perspective. I know the Canadians out there will certainly object to that. But the independence overthrew the ruling order because they thought they were trying to initiate heaven on earth. Or some of them thought that. They were inaugurating. Christ's kingdom on earth. In other words, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, was to be realized here and now, and it was opposed. Not simply, if you like, to anti-Christian forces, but to what we would now call any kind of secular forces whatsoever. We have modern examples, uh, somewhat less harmful on the whole. Um, Alternative communities, community churches... Uh, Ron Sider, who teaches down the road at Easton, wrote a very famous book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, draws on that kind of Anabaptist heritage. Um, John Howard Yoda would be another theologian who would draw on uh, an Anabaptist heritage of seeing the need to realise the kingdom on earth now in terms of social structures, alternative communities. Um, what can I say about this approach? Uh, I would say that it can tend to a legalism. It's certainly very legalistic the way it was conceived of in the Reformation and can tend to a kind of legalism. Just to inject at this point a little parenthesis on the the social gospel. Um, Often as conservatives, you think, well, social gospel is a bad thing. It's worth remembering, I think, the social gospel, the idea that the gospel (coughs) has a social impact and places social obligations upon Christians with regard to the poor or wider society is not, strictly speaking, a liberal idea. It was picked up and run with and developed in its most famous ways by liberal theologians. But if you go back to the 19th century, an awful lot of good, solid, sound, conservative reform people are involved in precisely the same kind of social activism. Um, I think, particularly in Scotland, Thomas Chalmers or James Begg particularly James Begg, a man notorious in many ways for his theological conservatism, divided his time between campaigning against the introduction of organs and music into churches in Scotland and travelling down to London to campaign for the abolition of the Bothy system, which is a way of exploiting poor workers and for better conditions for the working man. So the social gospel, just as a parenthesis, is not necessarily a hallmark of a loony view of the kingdom of God. At all, it fits quite happily with a number of these models. The fourth pseudo model, as I've said, the broadly evangelical. I think the evangelicalism has not, generally speaking, produced creative thinking on the kingdom of God. Sorry, they're coming. Just, just yes. Just be patient, Virginia. We'll get there. <laughs> As I was saying before I was so rudely interrupted, <laughs> uh, broadly evangelical, I think, is produced on the whole limited discussion of the kingdom of God. And I suspect that's because the, when you start talking about the kingdom, you're often talking in corporate or social categories. And evangelicalism is generally not talked in corporate or social categories. It's generally, talk, generally talked in individualistic categories. That is not to say that evangelicalism is just individualism. But I would say there's an individualistic emphasis there in the history of evangelicalism that militates somewhat against spending great amount of time reflecting upon uh, Christ's teaching on the kingdom. And I think more recently uh, that individualistic emphasis has been taken over by perhaps more therapeutic or consumerist emphases in evangelical thinking um, that still militate against precisely the sort of reflection I was talking about final category I wanted to mention tonight is the liberationist approach. Key figures, most of the key figures in the liberationist movement are Catholics, but not entirely so. There are also some significant uh, South American Pentecostal figures. Though I know many South, what we would call South American Pentecostals dislike being called Pentecostals because they don't see their movements as necessarily being the precise equivalent of North American or British Pentecostalism. But they are... Pentecost with a small p, Protestants. Uh, Gustavo Gutierrez, Leonardo Boff, uh, Miguez Bonino. These are the kind of figures to look at in terms of liberation views of the kingdom. It's been particularly strong in South America among Catholics on the whole, but also, as I say, among um, Pentecostals. Partly, I think, is a direct result of the sort of social and economic conditions down there. Um, The church in the 60s and 70s and on into the 80s was a focus of protest against corrupt military regimes, anti-democratic regimes. Um, There were also problems related to the development of the South American economy in the 60s and 70s, hyperinflation, kind of conditions that one had in Weimar, Germany. led to the flowering of theological reflection on the kingdom of God among a group of Catholic bishops and Catholic theologians who took liberation as one of their key themes and kingdom as one of the great motifs of what they were trying to do. Uh, They tended to see theology as action or praxis. There's a famous statement by Karl Marx, something to the effect of uh, the philosophers have described the world, but the point of Philosophy is not to describe the world, but to change the world. These men, very influenced by Marxian categories to a large extent, picked up on that thinking of Marx and translated into the theological frame. The purpose of theological reflection upon the kingdom is not to describe the kingdom, it's to change society and inaugurate the kingdom. It's deeply influenced as well by Marxist understanding of history, which tends to privilege the poor, and the oppressed and see ultimately that society will be the contradictions if you like in society will reach such a point that there'll be something approximating a revolution and the poor will be brought out on top. What the, what the liberationists did was take hold of a lot of secular thinking, what we might call secular eschatological thinking about the ultimate triumph of the poor and tried to translate that into Christian categories. It was significant, I think, in a number of ways. Significant because it challenged dominant ways of reading Scripture. And it provokes those of us who aren't liberation theologians but who read liberation theology to rethink how we think about some of what we consider to be obvious biblical texts. Liberationists give new and interesting um, twists to The biggest problem, I think, with liberation theology is that its understanding of the kingdom looks very much like a Marxist understanding of proletarian revolution expressed in Christian theological language. Um, Having said that, however, I think even as we criticize liberation theologians for precisely that mistake, I sometimes suspect that we're hard on liberation theologians We say we're hard on them because they're dressing up their politics in religious language, but we're actually hard on them because they're left wing. That we're quite happy for politicians who we like to dress up their political ideologies and agendas in religious garb and pass it off as Christianity. So I think one of the things that reading liberation theologians does is it helps to cultivate a critical mentality, not only towards liberationist views of the kingdom, but also towards the views of the kingdom that our own pastors and our own politicians are pushing forward. Because they are not necessarily any more biblical than left-wing Catholic bishops in South America. So that's the last, the last chapter. I think that much of the recent significant thinking on the kingdom, wrong-headed though I think it is, has been done by South Americans. So then I've given you what I consider to be the broad models for understanding the kingdom throughout history. The Augustinian model, where the kingdom is essentially spiritualized and projected into the future. The Constantinian model, which covers a variety of different approaches, but where the kingdom can be used, Christian theology can be used uh, at best for using the state to do certain Christian things. At worst... For making the gospel merely an implement of state control of this, that, or the other, the sectarian that sees an alternative society being set up by the church. And if you wanted, if if you're thinking of a modern, uh, some of the most interesting modern stuff from a sectarian (laughs) perspective, I guess would be written by Stanley Howavas, Duke University who has the ability to write in a very winsome way at a popular level as well as at a very sophisticated level. Stanley Hauvast sees the church as an alternative community. He's a sort of sectarian. Um, the broadly evangelical, as I said, you won't get much there on the whole, and the liberationist, Gutierrez Boff Bonino. So what are the issues that church history then brings to our attention just in conclusion? I think one of the conclusions we can draw is that reflection on the kingdom of God is something of a thermometer for understandings of the relationship between church and state in any given society or culture. If you look at theological reflection on the kingdom, you can usually date, without knowing who wrote it, you can probably date it and geographically locate it because it tends to reflect so much of the agenda of the wider culture in which it was written. There is a danger... I want to say at this point, however, in conceiving the kingdom in a way that sets it in automatic opposition to the political establishment that sticks its head in the sand and says, well, politics is nothing to do with the church anyway, or allows itself to be recruited by the dominant politics of the day. There are three dangers there and the trick, I think, or the skill is being able to keep a critical distance from all three. Second issue, kingdom issues touch directly on how the individual is understood within the larger social reality of which we are a part. This is why I think that the kingdom has not been greatly reflected upon in strongly evangelical circles. And that's because the issue of kingdom Raises issues and problems that a narrow, strict focus on individual salvation does not raise as such. Thirdly, it raises questions about what the gospel is, what it looks like in a social context. Does it look like a gun wielding Catholic priest in South America? Does it look like a gun wielding anti abortionist in North America? raises questions of what the gospel looks like in a social and political context. And I think finally, it points towards a central but neglected core of Christ's own teaching with which any reader of the Bible must sooner or later come to terms. Christ says an awful lot about the kingdom. The Bible says an awful lot about the kingdom. I'm just a historian. I'm leaving that to my colleagues in the coming weeks.